you would turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11, we are going to finish the chapter today, beginning in verse 32 to the end of the chapter. Hear the word of the Lord. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah of David, Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Let's pray together. Father, we ask again for your help, uh, Lord, as we read your word. Father, help us to see the faith of our forefathers, we pray as well, Lord, that you would give us that same faith, uh, a faith that is clearly seen in Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that we would know what it means to live by faith and that we would walk in faith in a way that is pleasing to you that would give us a commendable life unto our Father, not because of the good works that we have done, but because we have trusted in the perfect righteousness of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the Olympic torch relay that you're most of you are familiar with uh, that happens each time the Olympics begin again, the summer or the winter uh, periods of time. Uh, they're based upon this ancient Greek um, game that took place. It's a, a unique race that took place where the winner of the race in the torch relay was not the first person to cross the finish line, but rather it was the person who finished still with his torch still burning. And so, as you can imagine, many of them were running faster than others, but their flame went out. And so it was the one who still had his flame burning bright. And you can see that the writer of Hebrews has been trying to say the same type of thing, and he's going to use that race imagery in the next chapter beginning. But basically the point is, it's not he who began the race well, but he who continues to burn brightly by their faith in Christ until the end. And that's what we're seeing again and again in this chapter. He's already used numerous examples of the faith of our forefathers to show us what that faith looks like. But now, as uh, typical for preachers, he's run out of time. And uh, doesn't have as much time to go through each individual as he did in the past through the life of Moses and Abraham and many of the um, earlier church fathers, if you will. So now he's basically giving us a, a number of names and a number of actions that took place for those who lived by faith in Jesus Christ. And I, I want to share with you again three more lessons. It doesn't always have to be three, but it's just easier. 
We're going to give you three lessons uh, about what does this faith in Christ look like that, that we share in common with our forefathers from the Old Testament. Here's the first lesson. By faith, God's people can do mighty things. Second, by faith, God's people can share in Christ's sufferings. And third, by faith, God's people can conquer and overcome the world. Let's start with number one. By faith, God's people can do mighty things. In verse 32 of our text, the author mentions four of the judges by name. He also speaks of David as well as of Samuel, who is the the prophet priest who sort of is the intermediary between the judges and the time of the kings. But uh, the first name he mentions, most of you know, would be Gideon. If you remember, he was the one who was hiding at first when the Lord found him, but eventually raised him up to lead God's army of Israel. And if you remember, he started out with 32,000 troops, but the Lord made him reduce the number down to 10,000, and then finally down to 300 to face a multitude of Midianites with myriads and myriads of camels which may not seem very threatening to us in our day and age, but camels were very quick creatures and could get their enemies to quickly trample them. And so uh, we see that in addition to limiting the size of their number, he also, if you remember, none of them are carrying swords. They're just carrying trumpets and jars or pitchers that are covering their flames of fire, all as a ruse in, in battle. But by faith, they conquered the Midianites. In the same way, he also mentions Barak, and if you remember, Barak was also a man who was afraid, who asked Deborah to go along with him because he could not go by himself. And uh, in that case, again, this time it was the Canaanites who had numerous iron chariots facing against the Israelites who were all on foot. And we see by faith they conquered the Canaanites. Then uh, again, if there's one who's more known than any other of the judges would be Samson by faith. Uh, he does a lot of things and feats of strength, but his most famous one is the one in which he uh, causes the roof to collapse upon him and upon 3,000 Philistines as they're watching to be entertained by him by faith. He kills more Philistines in his death than he does in his life. And Jephthah, another one of those uh, uh, heroes of the faith, if you will, most people remember him for his bad vow that he made that he ended up in taking his own daughter's life. Uh, but he also was known as a mighty warrior unto the Lord. In fact, if you read through the account about Jephthah, it says it almost seems as if single-handedly he took out all the men in 20 different Ammonite cities all by himself. By faith, he conquered the Ammonites. And of course, everybody knows David and how he, by faith, conquered uh, Goliath, and also destroyed many of the enemies of Israel throughout his generation. And finally, by faith, Samuel subdued the Philistines, not by the sword, but it says by his prayers and by his sacrifices unto God. By faith, he trusted God to overcome the enemy. So that's the, you know, a brief list of all these men uh, during the time of the judges up until the time of the kings. But now he, he transitions from this list of names to, in verse 33, a number of the mighty things that many Old Testament believers did by faith in God's Word. First, he says, through faith, some had conquered kingdoms. Now, in addition to the number of victories we already just shared in the time of the judges, 
he also uh, certainly has to be referring to the time of Joshua, where literally it says on numerous occasions throughout the Old Testament, Joshua led the Israelites to conquer the kingdom of the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. So over and over again, keep seeing them conquering kingdom after kingdom by faith in God's word. God had promised the land would be theirs, and by faith they conquered. In the same way, he says, through faith, some enforced justice. Clearly, uh, we think of people like King Solomon. Uh, most of us think of his most uh, uh, unique uh, judgment call, if you remember, when the two women were fighting over which baby was whose, and he suggested cutting the baby in half in order to determine uh, who was the true mother of the child. Uh, later on in, in, in Kings, we find out that Solomon is being revered even by the pagans for his great wisdom and for his great justice. The same way, uh, King Jehoshaphat uh, was a very godly man who appointed judges throughout Judea, and he continually warned them to judge according to the fear of the Lord and not according to man. By faith, these men administered justice. And in our day and age where you don't see a whole lot of justice, it's nice to know that there are some who by faith seek to do so. He also says, through faith, some obtained promises. And we're going to talk about the greater promises at the end of this text where uh, none of them received the fullness of the promise. But in this case, many obtained some promises. For those of you who have been coming on Sunday night, we have been talking about some of the highlights of the Old Testament and the highlights of the covenant. And there are two points we see are sort of the pinnacles of Old Testament history and narrative. The first is, is found in Joshua chapter 23, verse 14 where Joshua says to his people right before he passes that not one of all the good promises of the Lord your God that he has given to us has ever failed. So they see the promises fulfilled in the time of Joshua. In the same way, when King Solomon is dedicating the temple uh, unto God in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 56, he says the same thing. Not one word has failed of all the good promise which he has spoken by Moses, his servant. So, so again, we see by faith they saw the promises fulfilled in their own lives as they stepped out in faith and obedience. Then he moves on and talks about the faith of some who stopped the mouths of lions. Again, we might think of David and we might think of Samson, both men that killed a lion with their bare hands. Uh, but I think the person he particularly has in mind here certainly would be Daniel. Uh, who was thrown into the lion's den, if you remember, for praying to the Lord rather than praying to the king. Can you imagine being commanded to pray to a king, to a man rather than unto God? When he cried out unto the Lord, the, the, the Lord sent his angel to shut the mouths of the lions, and the scripture says there was not a scratch on him, for he trusted in his God. By faith, he shut the mouths of lions. In the same way, most of you are familiar with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who quenched the power of fire. If you remember again, they were told to bow down to that huge idol of King Nebuchadnezzar. When they were thrown into the fiery furnace, we see that not a hair on their heads were singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. No smell of fire was even found on their clothes. Why? Because it says, for they trusted in their God, setting aside the king's command and yielding up their bodies rather than to serve and worship a foreign god. By faith, they quench the, 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 the flame of the fire. It also says, through faith, some escape the edge of the sword. Numerous times in 1 Samuel, we see David is constantly escaping 
the sword of King Saul, who is pursuing him throughout his kingdom, even into the wilderness, trying to take his life. But each time the Lord preserves his life as he looks to him by faith. In the same way, we also see later on the time of Elijah and Elisha. Uh, again, numerous times the kings were searching for them, seeking to kill them by the edge of the sword because they were troublers of Israel, the king would say. And yet the Lord preserved their lives as they, by faith, rebelled against the king. He says, through faith some were made strong and out of weakness. Some became mighty in war and put foreign armies to flight. I can think of at least two examples with King Jehoshaphat, again, as well as King Hezekiah. In both accounts, we have two kings and their kingdoms who realize how helpless and weak they really are in light of these great armies that are about to attack them. And in both cases, we see King Jehoshaphat and King Hezekiah simply praying unto the Lord, saying, Lord, deliver us. And by faith, they put these foreign armies to flight. And then finally, in that first section, he also talks about the faith of some women who received back their dead by resurrection. And again, if you know your Old Testament well, you'll know this is during the time of Elijah and Elisha's ministry. We see Elijah raises the widow's son from the dead in that very strange way that he does it. And then also we see the same thing in Elisha's ministry with the Shunammite woman, also who had her son raised from the dead. Now what all of these saints have in common is that by faith, by trusting in God's Word, they were able to do mighty works in the name of the Lord. So what is expected of God's people today? Are we expecting to shut the mouths of lions? Are we expecting to put out the flames of fire? Maybe. <laughs> but not certainly. We're certainly not promised these things. So what are we promised I think it's very important that we get this concept, especially in the New Testament, how it transitions. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, now that the gospel of Christ has been proclaimed clearly, we're not living in the shadows like the Old Testament believers were. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus commissions his disciples before sending them out to testify to his name, and he says to them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Now, it's interesting that we understand this word that's used in the Greek for power. Uh, it, it, in the Greek, it's dunamis from which we get our word dynamite. There is a dynamite power that God gives to every saint that is filled with the Holy Spirit to do mighty things for the sake of the Lord. And there are a number of things that we're called to do. Certainly, one of those things is to speak forth the name of Christ through the power of the gospel. So in, in, in some cases in the New Testament, we see that the apostles were demonstrating this power, this dynamite power, through miracles, through these wonder-working miracles that were confirming the message of God that they were preaching to the masses. Now again, we're not promised those same miracle-working powers that they had, but we are promised that through this same power that comes through the Holy Spirit, that even through our words, our words become a powerful testimony unto Christ. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4. He says, My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. In other words, it wasn't just these miracles that he was performing, but in his very sharing of his testimony to the perfection, the righteousness of Christ, 
God worked through him by his faith and demonstrated the power of the gospel. This is why Paul tells him, uh, tells all of the people to, to believe and not to be ashamed of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it can convert people. We often forget that. It does mighty working change in the lives of those who hear it for one ray, one reason or another. Another way in which we can see that power uh, available to us is through our ability to love our neighbor in a way that we were never able to love them before, especially those who hate us. <laughs> I don't know about you, but you might have had someone who has hated you from time to time or just did not want to hear what you had to say because of your testimony to Christ and yet nevertheless still be able to love that person in the name of Christ. The Apostle Paul tells Timothy on a number of occasions not to be afraid. In one particular case, in 2 Timothy 1.7, he tells Timothy, he says, God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And he's basically talking to Timothy as he's trying to help the church grow and he's confronting people that are against the gospel. He says, God did not give us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and love to tell others about Christ, to consistently manifest the work of the Spirit in our lives. Although miracles are not common today, uh, still God does work the miracle of salvation every day, all around the world. We often forget that when someone is converted to Christ, that is a miracle. It is a new birth. They are born again to a new world, a kingdom of God, and that has to happen through the power of the Spirit alone. It's not something that you can do through talking them into it, but we have to believe that and by faith talk to people about Christ, knowing that God can do this wonder-working power through our words, through the gospel. But oftentimes we forget that. We forget that that power is available to us, both in terms of our own ability to grow in sanctification, to grow in love, but also to be able to speak forth the name of Christ with power. Notice what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. Having tasted something of that power, he's praying regularly, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Same word, dynamite, power. I want to know the power that God raised Jesus from the dead, I want to see that evidenced in my life. And so he's constantly praying for that. I want to know Christ. I want to know his power. But he's also praying the same thing for the church. Uh, three times in Ephesians, when he tells the believers what he's praying for them, he tells them he's praying for their power as they are in tune with the Holy Spirit. Notice uh, chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Paul prays for them saying, that, he, uh, that they would know what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might that worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. He says He wants us to understand, to know this great power. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power of the Holy Spirit that is at work within us. To know that, but we often forget that, that power is available to us, again, both in terms of our own sanctification, but also in terms of our witness. That same power that raised Christ from the dead can raise another person to new life through your words. Now, you may never shut the mouth of a lion, <laughs> but you may shut the mouth of an unbeliever. 
who has heard the gospel and has been convicted by it because you believed that God could do it. We often forget that, that that power is available to us. Uh, Paul says again in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, speaking of the promise of God in reference to this same power, Paul says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus in every generation. This is one of my favorite verses, one of the ones that I've memorized a number of times. I think I still have it memorized. But the point of the passage is simply this. Christ has promised in every generation that Christ will be glorified. And in every generation that the church will share in that glory. And so he prays that we know the power that's available to us so that we can see the power demonstrated in our lives and through our witness that Christ would be glorified in our generation. Even when you think that things are not going so well, even when you think that the world is falling apart at the seams, the promise that we have is that power is available to this generation to speak forth the name of Christ. We forget that. But it's precisely because we forget that he's praying for that for the believers. Same thing for the Thessalonians. He's praying for them regularly, he says, that God would fulfill their every work of faith with his power, that they would know it, that they would believe it, and they would walk accordingly. And so it's the same way for us today. The Lord has given us that same power by faith in God's word if we just tap into it by seeking the Lord, seeking the power of the Holy Spirit in that regard. So that's, that's how the gospel's advanced, by faith in God's power. On the other hand, God's power isn't always displayed through our victories. It isn't always displayed through people coming to faith in Christ through our words. It isn't always displayed through a sense of victory. Sometimes it's also displayed through our weaknesses and through our failure. It's just as important to understand that as it is the first point, and that's why I want to focus on this. Secondly, by faith, God's people also share in Christ's sufferings. Notice beginning in the, the beginning of verse 35, sort of the middle of verse 35. The author of Hebrews moves from the victories of faith to the agonies endured by faith. Right after speaking to the women who received back their... their um, they're dead through resurrection. He speaks of those who by faith were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Uh, this particular instance actually doesn't come from the Old Testament or even from the New Testament, but rather from the intertestamental period of time known as the Maccabean Revolt. Uh, there were, and it's actually in the uh, the apocryphal book is explaining it, which does give you quite a bit of history, even if it's not included in the inspired Word of God. It's telling us what happened to some of the believers during the time between uh, the ending of the Old Testament and the time of Christ. And during the Maccabean Revolt, there is an account of seven brothers and their mother who have refused to eat the, the flesh of pigs. Uh, again, it's sort of like uh, Daniel and his three friends refusing to eat the, the unclean food of King Nebuchadnezzar. In the same way, these are refusing to eat uh, the flesh of pigs under the tyrannical reign of Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, who again is the, the ruler at that time. Literally what has happened as a result of their refusal to go along with what everyone else is doing 
Uh, he has them strapped down to a tapanum. A Greek, it's a large drum. Think of a, I don't know how it's, is it a timpani? Is that how you pronounce it? Uh, think of those large kettle drums. In fact, the way they're described, it's like a human-like skin covering the drum itself. But literally how they would torture them is they would just continue to beat them and beat them and beat them until they bled to death. Uh, this was the, the manner of their torture, but they all refused to recant. They all refused to give in and to break the law of God. And as a result, it says they refused to accept release in order that they might gain, some of your translations will say, a better resurrection. Now, that doesn't mean that if you, you're martyred, then you get to go to a better place in heaven than someone else. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, in, in contrast to the resurrection of the sons of the widow and the Shunammite woman in the Old Testament, who were resurrected to the same place in the same body, they would be resurrected to the full resurrection at the coming of Christ, which is a better resurrection. You're not just been resurrected to the same old deplorable condition, but something to where we no longer sin ever again and enjoy the full presence of Christ in heaven. Then in verse 36, the author continues to speak of those who have shared in Christ's sufferings. He speaks of those who suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. Um, some of you may not be as familiar with Micaiah, uh, the prophet whom King Ahab hated with a passion. He says because he never spoke a good word about him. <laughs> and the reason why he never spoke a good word about him was because the Lord was against him and he refused to repent. And so uh, every time King Ahab would continue to say, uh, prophesy for me, and he's like, you don't want me to <laughs> because it's not going to be good. And so eventually he got to the point where the prophet was telling him lies. The Lord told him to tell him lies, and, and King Ahab knew it wasn't true. And so immediately he had, he had the prophet uh, slapped upside his face and then thrown in prison and, and uh, eventually put to death. In the same way, most of us are familiar with Jeremiah. He's called the weeping prophet for a reason. No one's listening to him. The kings hate him. Uh, he was beaten. He was put in stocks. He was thrown in prison and later thrown in the bottom of a well thirsting for water, looking, begging for food, and that was his lot for most of his ministry. And if you look at verse 37, the author says that also some were stoned to death for their faith. Probably the most famous one would be Zechariah, not the one that wrote the, the book, but another Zechariah in the Old Testament who um, was stoned to death in the very courts of the temple, which is a very brazen act on behalf of a king, but uh, the king had him put to death by stoning in the temple itself. Uh, he's the one that Jesus mentions later on in the Gospels. But many of the prophets were stoned to death to the point where in Matthew chapter 23, verse 37, Jesus laments, if you remember, he's on top of the Mount of Olives, and he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how I have longed to gather your children together. So again, he's saying, most of the prophets are stoned to death for speaking forth the name of God. So uh, as much as in some cases we see the mouths of the lions shut, in other cases they're being fed to the lions. And this also is a part of God's plan. In addition to the, some being stoned, some were sawn in two. And we have one, at least historical accounts, not in Scripture, but of Isaiah's death that literally uh, it tells us that King Manasseh took a saw and cut Isaiah's body in two because he was so upset with his prophesying. 
uh, and others likewise. He mentions many of the prophets were killed at the edge of the sword. In Elijah's day alone, he's complaining unto God that pretty much every other prophet he knows has been killed at the edge of the sword. He's like, Lord, I'm all alone because he's seen so much bloodshed. In the same way, in Jeremiah's day, he had a co-laborer, if you're familiar with the book of Jeremiah. Uriah was also another one who served as a messenger to the prophet, and he was killed by the sword for basically presenting the prophecy unto the king. And as you know, John the Baptist, technically, although he's in the New Testament, he's considered the last prophet of the Old Testament. We know he too was beheaded by the sword. Now, not all of God's prophets were put to death. Uh, but many of them still suffered much for the sake of Christ. Verse 37, the author speaks of those who went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. Again, you probably know that in Elijah's day, he was well known for wearing animal skins and for eating whatever he could find, locust and wild honey, uh, because his life was always in danger by the king. Many of the prophets began to follow that same pattern, especially during the time of King Ahab and then later on, because they could not speak forth the word of God without persecution. Uh, we see that later, during, uh, during uh, Elijah's day, Obadiah, one man, had hid 200 prophets in a cave and had fed them for, I think, a year or two with bread and water to preserve their life from the faith of the king. And the way Scripture talks about it, it says the world was unworthy of these men, which is strange because the world was saying they were unworthy. <laughs> but in, in, in the eyes of God, the world was unworthy of them. In fact, if you've not read some of the books that are related to that, there's a, a book that I just started reading recently called The Scotsworthies. And it's a whole history of all the men in Scotland who were persecuted for the faith, of whom the world was not worthy of their life. And this type of suffering shouldn't be looked down upon. This too is done by faith. In fact, it's following in the life of Christ himself, right? So if he goes to the cross, what would think that his followers would not also suffer some type of persecution? In fact, the, the word that's used in the Greek in reference to their suffering is the exact same word that's used in reference to his suffering. We often refer to Jesus as the Paschal Lamb or the Suffering Lamb of God. It's the same word that's used in Greek here to show that they are called to suffer for his name's sake. Three times, if you remember, Jesus is warning his disciples, he's going to Jerusalem to suffer. I'm going to Jerusalem to suffer. I'm going to Jerusalem to suffer. And if you remember, Peter's trying to stop him from suffering in this way. But we see later on, Peter's called to that same type of suffering. The Apostle Paul himself, if you remember when he's on the road to Damascus and he's trying to kill Christians, the word that he receives from Christ from heaven in Acts chapter 9, verse 16, he's told him not only what he wants him to do in preaching the gospel, but he says he also tells him how much he must suffer for his name's sake. That sounds like a great motivation to call to follow Christ, does it not? I'm going to show you how much you must suffer for my name's sake. But then Paul tells the Philippian church the same thing. He says, it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, not only to believe, but also to suffer for his name's sake. It's granted to you. It's a gifted to you, if you will. And actually, he tells the Thessalonians that the afflictions that they are enduring at that time are evidence that they're considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which they are suffering. Peter says the same thing in his epistles. 
in his first epistle, he says, for, for to this you have been called, brothers, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. And we see as many times of the victories of some of the early churches, we see early on in Revelation chapter 2, one in which the church is about to undergo great suffering. And he tells them directly, do not fear what you're about to suffer. He says, for some, or some of you are about to be thrown in prison and to be in tribulation. But he tells them, Jesus says to them, be faithful even unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And so Paul, in addition to wanting to know Christ and asking to know the power of his resurrection, notice afterwards in Philippians 3.10, he also says, and I want to know the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. I want to enter into his suffering as much as I enter into his power in whatever way that unfolds. And we see that you know, throughout the history of the church, not just in the New Testament, certainly uh, a great example could be found in the Boxer Rebellion in China in 1900. It's amazing how much the Chinese people have endured for years, and it hasn't ended. They're still enduring persecution. But in 1900, during the Boxer Rebellion, a number of armed insurgents had come into one particular mission station. So all these people were here to, to present the gospel to their, their brothers and sisters throughout China. And immediately the insurgents came. They blocked all the gates. In front of the, one of the gates, they had placed a cross flat on the ground. And the assurance was given to them that if they trampled on the cross that was laid upon the ground, they could go free. And they were done. And they would be left alone. But if they didn't, trample upon the cross, they would be put to death. And so we see first seven students, so there's about a hundred of them, the first seven students in great fear, they immediately trample the cross and then they leave until it gets to the eighth students, a young girl, she refuses to do it. She kneels beside the cross and begins to pray for strength. She rises up and carefully walks around the cross and then stands basically in front of the firing squad and they shoot her and they kill her after she does that strengthened by her example the next 92 students do the same so the first seven walked out the rest of them wanted to share in the sufferings of christ so just as some obtained great victories by their faith others we see endured great suffering and persecution for their faith. But in both cases, it wasn't he who finished first, but he whose flame was still burning brightly for Christ. That was the difference. And what's true of both groups, though, is this, and this is a very important point, this is the third point, that in both cases, God's people conquered and overcame the world by their faith whether they experience the victories in this world or whether they experience the sufferings of this world, in both cases, by faith, they conquered and overcame. You know, sometimes it seems random why God allows some of us to uh, suffer, whereas others are preserved from suffering, at least in certain instances and circumstances. If you think about it, um, Elijah was spared the wrath of King Ahab and certainly the, the vitriol of Queen Jezebel but hundreds and hundreds of his fellow prophets were slaughtered by that same king and queen. 
even though God made a purpose of hiding him out and feeding him with ravens, remember? Bringing him food out in the middle of the wilderness. Preserved one, allowed the others to suffer. In the same way, we talked about Uriah, the the co-laborer of Jeremiah. Uriah was slaughtered for prophesying before the king. Jeremiah was preserved again and again. He suffered in other ways, but his life was preserved. We think about Peter, right? The disciples are praying for Peter. And all of a sudden, an angel comes in and removes him from prison. All the while, James is executed, the fellow disciple, to prove that sometimes God does things for his own reasons and his own mysterious providence, but that in both cases, they conquered by faith. Not by earthly victories, not by the ways that we would think of in in the ways of the world. That's what Paul means in Romans 8. It's, uh, even though we often use it as a uh, motivational poster, I think, in Christian circles. Romans 8, 35-37. Let me read it to you again. Here's what Paul says. He says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation separate us? Distress? Persecution? Famine? Nakedness? Danger or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Notice the conquering didn't take place because they shut the mouths of the lions. In some cases, they were thrown to the lions. And yet, they conquered through their faith in Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, which brand of tennis shoes? Trivia question for you. Which brand of tennis shoes is mentioned more often than any other in Scripture? You could say converse. Converse, uh, They converse with each other a few times in Scripture. Nike is the one word that's used again and again. Nike comes from the Greek, and it's actually used as the word Nike in Greek uh, in the Scripture numerous times in the New Testament. Of course, the, the way we get Nike from the tennis shoe came originally from the concept of the Olympics with the marathon runner, if you will, the guy who ran from, the, the, from marathon to Athens to declare victory. And so he yells at the top of his lungs, Nike, and then collapses and dies. And now a bunch of dummies want to run marathons in memoriam for that. Um, Anyone who wants to run 26 miles, whatever. But anyway, the point is, it's that concept of victory. Nike means victory. It means conqueror. It means overcomer. So at least the, the, the verb as well as the noun refer to that. So what we see over and over again, especially in the book of Revelation, and I've mentioned to this this to you before, but I want to read it to you again just to see uh, how predominant a theme this idea of conquering is, especially toward the end of the Bible, especially in reference to what the church undergoes in terms of persecution. This is what Christ says to the churches. I'm, I'm taking from each of the section from all the churches. He says, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat from the tree of life. To the one who conquers, he will not be hurt by the second death. To the one who conquers, I will give authority over the nations. To the one who conquers, I will never blot out his name from the book of life. To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. And the conquering concept here is not those who took out kingdoms and who shut the mouths of lions, but those who stood with Christ by faith all their lives. 
Uh, maybe some of you remember the, the song, uh, I think it was called The Champion by Carmen back in the 80s, you remember that? <laughs> and the whole point was it's meant to be a boxing match between the devil and Christ, and, and at the end, you know, the Jesus puts his hands down, if you will, and then Satan punches him and knocks him out, and, and supposedly Jesus has died on the mat, and then all of a sudden God is counting down, and, and uh, Christ comes back to life. And immediately he's declared to be the champion. And it's kind of funny if you think about it because I'm like, well, he's a champ. He didn't actually knock the Satan out, right? He just, he's declared the champion because he comes back alive from his suffering, from his death. But there is some truth in that, in that sense that Christ didn't conquer by killing people. He didn't conquer by taking out lions and proving his power over the devil in that sense. But he conquered through his suffering. And he says that's often the way it is for the church as well. If you think about how Christ actually conquers the devil he constantly is saying this over and over again in, in Revelation. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, the Lord reveals to the Apostle John, he says that God's people have conquered the devil by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. They conquered by their faith in the suffering servant as in Christ. Revelation chapter 21, again, once more he promises that the one who conquers by faith will freely enter into the new heavens and the new earth. But he says, but for the cowardly and the faithless, their portion will be in the lake of fire, for they did not love the Lord more than they loved their own lives. In the first epistle of John, he says this, chapter 5, verse 4, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, conquers the world. And this is the victory, literally, this is the Nike in Greek. This is the Nike that has overcome the world, our faith. How do you conquer? You only conquer through faith in Christ. He says again, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And he proves that he believes it even unto death. How do you know if you have genuine faith? Ultimately, it comes through endurance. It's not, you think of the parable of the sower. A lot of seed is thrown out. Some is choked by the vine. Some is burned by the sun. Some is eaten by the birds. But then some grows and multiplies and multiplies and multiplies. He says, those who have heard the seed of the gospel is sunk down into their heart and they believe it. They love Christ. They walk with Christ. They fight for Christ. They run for Christ. That's the difference. What we have in common with the saints of old is simply that same faith. They had just a little bit of an understanding of who Christ was. We have the full picture. And how could we possibly be cowards when they were full-fledged fanatics looking unto the Christ who was to come? John Calvin, the reformer, said it this way. He said, a tiny spark of light led them to heaven, meaning the Old Testament saints. But now that the sun of righteousness shines on us, what excuse shall we offer if we still cling to the things of earth? What we have in common is that they have been waiting for us to join with them in praise unto the Christ who has finally been revealed. 
So with that, I, I want to close this morning just with some of the words from the hymn that we're about to sing. Some of you may not be familiar with it. I always try to purposely make everybody upset not being able to sing songs they want. Um, but this is a great song that goes along with this theme. It's called The Son of God Goes Forth to War. And I'll have them sing at least the first verse one through so you can get through it. But it says this, The Son of God goes forth to war, a kingly crown to gain. How does he do that? It says his blood-red banner streams afar. And it keeps asking this question, who follows in his train? So who's following in the train of, of Christ's robe? Twelve valiant saints mocked the cross and flame. They met the tyrant's brandished steel, the lion's gory mane. They bowed their necks, the death to feel. Who follows in their train? Keeps asking that question. Then finally at the end of the hymn, he says, O God, to us may grace be given to follow in their train. That we too would share the same faith of the saints of old, the same faith of those first twelve disciples the same faith of Christ. And we're ultimately going to see that next week. All of this is pointing to Christ. That he is, in fact, the hero of the faith that they all were pointing to. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we ask again that you would help us in applying the very word of God, Lord, that you would give us that faith that has been spoken of, that we would ask for more of it, that we would know the power of Christ's resurrection, that we would know the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, that we would know what it means to conquer, to overcome the world by our faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name.